and live. And uh, we're going to be taking it from John 6, but I'll give you the reference for that in a moment. Jesus says in John 6 and 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So can I ask you a question in introduction? Can you picture Jesus? Can you picture Jesus? Uh, as I was working on this sermon this week, our senior pastor, Peter Granger, came into my office and uh, sort of scanned over my shoulder just to check out that I was going to be kosher, I think. But he was looking at my computer screen and he said, I've got a brilliant illustration for you to open with. Uh, saw it on the BBC News this last week. So I'm using that. Uh, check out this headline from the BBC News website. Family see Jesus' image in Marmite. Uh, the article goes on to read, It may not be immediately obvious to everyone, but one family are convinced they can see the face of Jesus on a lid of a jar of Marmite. Claire Allen, 36, said that she was the first to notice the image on the underside of the lid as she was putting the yeast spread on her son's toast. Her father, Gareth, uh, 37, said he could not believe his eyes when he saw it. Uh, they're from Wales. I don't know if that's... Uh, relevant or not. But they said, uh, the kids are still eating it, but we've kept the lid. Mrs. Allen said that her 14-year-old son, Jamie, also remarked on the likeness, uh, as did Robbie and Thomas, their other children. Um, She says, people might think I'm nuts, but I like to think that it's Jesus looking out for us. And then you, you get this little bit of faith here, or not. She says, we've had a really tough couple of months. My mum's been really ill. And it's comforting to think that if he is there, he's watching over us. Well, if they listen to this download, um, well, we really are concerned for you, I think. But, I mean, can you picture Jesus? Link to this article on the website are reports of Jesus' face appearing on a hawthorn tree in West Sussex in 2005. A wall in Ghana in 2004 where the police were employed to control the crowds. An offence in a caravan park in South Australia in 2000. But my favourite is the face of Jesus appeared on a burnt chapati in India in 2002. Quite remarkable, isn't it? I'm not taking it serious that's remarkable. It's quite remarkable since no one actually knows what the man Jesus Christ looked like. And yet somehow we can see an image that somehow we attribute to him. I wonder if you've ever watched Rolf Harris paint one of these famous pictures of his, uh, a landscape scene or a portrait of someone famous. He starts off with an enormous canvas, about the size of a house normally, uh, and then a completely ridiculously oversized brush appears, and he just seems to randomly daub paint all over the picture. And as he's painting, he hums or sings and occasionally interjects his famous question, can you tell what it is yet? Tempted to do that with an Australian accent, but I thought I'd just keep that away from you as well. Can you tell what it is yet, he says. Well, at this point, it would be really helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. So uh, if you haven't brought your own Bible, if you're a visitor with us, there are Bibles in the pews. I would encourage you to pick one up. Because we're going to turn to one of the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, known as the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading through a section from a time which was effectively a sermon that Jesus himself preached and tried to, see, uh, tried to help people who followed him see more clearly what he was about. We're going to read from, uh, it's page 1070, uh, which is John chapter 6, 
verses 22. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter, but rather than read it all in one, I'm going to read it in the sections that Jesus preached it in, and then we'll look at the crowd's reaction. So first of all, from John 6, 22. The next day, the crowd that had stood on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that, he had gone, but that they, had not, they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, for that which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Let's just pause there for a moment. Keep your Bible open because we're going to refer to it uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. Well, the background to this is that the day before all this had happened, Jesus had performed a miracle. He had used only five small barley loaves and two small fish. And yet from that meager lunch, Jesus had been able to feed over 5,000 people who ate to their satisfaction, and there were loads of food left over. But being unwilling to be made the ruler by way of a popular uprising, Jesus got away into the mountains while his closest and most loyal group of disciples went across the Sea of Galilee by boat to Capernaum. During the crossing, uh, you can read it in the first part of John's uh, Gospel, chapter 6, during the crossing, a storm blew up and Jesus came walking in the water to the aid of disciples. Now, just just pause there for a moment. Um, If you've been a Christian a long time uh, and you really believe uh, in the inerrancy and the literacy of the Bible, then, then you're going to have no problem with that. But, you know, as I read that again this week and studied on it, then that stuff just takes some comprehension, doesn't it? Jesus feeds 5,000 people with enough to feed one grown man. Can we believe this stuff? And then he walks on the water, not for the first time. Wow. Wow. That's hard to take in, isn't it? Do you know, the truth is that if it's not true, you and I are just spending the most ridiculous hour of our lives reading it, listening to it. But if it is true, then we need to take seriously the claims that Jesus is about to make. You see, because it provides the backdrop against the sermon that Jesus himself is about to preach. Now, the Bible is full of stuff like this, and you and I quite literally have to decide what to do with it. You can either see it as true, either that, it's got to be a load of nonsense. Can't be two ways about it. Anyway, the story continues that the crowds have followed Christ after after this miracle over the lake to Capernaum. 
Apparently interested only in food. In verses 26 through 29, Jesus is challenging what seems to be a very shallow, carnal motive uh, and their ignorance of what it means to be saved by faith. When he graciously provided for their physical needs, the natural reaction was simply just to reach out and take it. Food was available. They took the food. Um, Something physical was offered. The natural reaction was to receive it. But Jesus says, look beyond the physical into the spiritual, because what I'm offering you is not a physical food. It's a spiritual food for spiritual eternal life. Notice the difference in reaction. They want to work for it. They simply accept the physical, but when the spiritual is offered to them, they want to do something for it. They want to work. They want to earn this thing that Jesus is offering them. Why would that be? Well, you know, as I look at it, I can't see any other reason than simply human pride. Human pride would have us do something to earn God's favor rather than accept it as a free gift. So Jesus explains there is no work to do than simply believe in him, the one God has sent to them. Immediately their reaction reveals the difficulty that every human being has when it comes to understanding spiritual matters. For having told them that, they then say, well, give us a sign then. It's often not enough for people to simply believe and trust. They need convincing, or so they think, or so they think. You see, when God had led the Hebrew nation out of captivity and slavery in Egypt towards the promised land, he provided daily food in the form of manna. This is the reference that they're making here. Uh, God provided manna for our fathers in the desert. He gave them the bread from heaven to eat, they say in verse 31. And if Jesus would only grant them the same daily provision of food, then they would recognize him as God and trust him accordingly. So they Yet Jesus knows that even their ancestors had failed to see the real significance behind the miracle of God's provision. And so these people were failing to see the significance of the miraculous meal in the previous day. So for a few moments, uh, picture with me God at work in the provision of salvation, because that's what's on offer from God tonight for each and every one of us. He wants to give us salvation from our sins. He wants to give us eternal life. So as Jesus, in very broad brush strokes, paints in his sermon the picture of what's available, we're going to look at it as the person, the process, and the power behind salvation. So first of all, the person, uh, the work of the Son of God. Here again we see that Jesus preaches. So in your Bible, turn to verse 32 and read with me. Down to 40. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
Let's pause there again. That's Jesus preaching. Jesus boldly and quite explicitly claims here to be the Son of God, claims to be God in human flesh. It's one of the several I am sayings in John's gospel that identifies Jesus with the voice of God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. Note the subtle and yet specific way Jesus tries to change the people's worldview, changes their belief system by the additional information that he provides. He's adding to the picture of what they can already see. He's putting more paint on the canvas of his salvation story. The bread of God is not a physical food substance. Verse 33 identifies the bread of God as a person, and no ordinary person in that. Just as physical food is necessary for sustaining physical life, so spiritual life needs to be sustained by spiritual food. Whenever Christians come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, they're instructed to take and to eat the bread in memory of Jesus, who is the bread of life. The physical bread is not literally the body of Jesus, but it speaks metaphorically of a precise moment in time when the body of Jesus carried the weight and burden of our sin on our behalf when he died on the cross. Reference has already been made to that tonight. But the Bible doesn't leave us in any doubt as to the implications of rejecting the man, Jesus Christ. It clearly states that Jesus is the only way to God, the Father, and to heaven. Acts 4 and 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus in John 8 and 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you did not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. So hearing this message from Jesus, the greatest preacher that ever lived, how do you think the people would respond? Well, we read it in verse 41 through 42. The people respond. At this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How could he now say, I came down from heaven? That's their reaction. That's the response to the preaching. Now, this may be due in part to the we know your feather syndrome, but tragically, I think there's much more a serious and sinister factor to it. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul there, the apostle, says, The God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, that is the good news of the glory of God. Note the reaction in verses 41 through 42 that we've just read of the people who listened. Well, they denied his deity, that Jesus said that God was his father, but they said, No, Joseph's your father. It's a denial of the deity of Jesus, failing to recognize that he is the Son of God. That's who he is as a person. It takes a second lead to the process of salvation, the work of God the Father. Again, Jesus preaches. Read on with me in verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. 
But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Again, we pause just to consider what Jesus is saying in his preaching. The Bible elsewhere tells us that no one, no one at all, of their own volition, by their own will, has a desire to seek God. Romans 3 Verse 10 following says, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now that being the case, salvation must begin with God. But how does God draw people? Verse 44, to Christ. Well, it's a unique word. It, it literally means to entice, sort of like a magnet would, to sort of just pull towards, to gr- cause something to gravitate towards. It's a word that's only used maybe four or five times in the Bible. He uses the word of God, the written word, and the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 45. Can I read to you from Second Thessalonians 2, where it says there, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is preaching, and he says, you need to observe the work of God the Father in this process. You see, to eat earthly bread sustains life for a time, but the person will ultimately die. To receive the spiritual bread, that is Christ, gives a person eternal life. Jesus clearly states that. Elsewhere, the Bible talks again and again and again about the all-sufficient, sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing us, saving us, purifying us from our sin. Notice that God desires all men and all women to accept His free gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. But notice, too, that God has given each man and woman a free will to make their own choices in this life. So in verse 52, turn back to the Bible with me, the people respond. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, the argument's really kicking off here, isn't it? At this statement, because so many of the people, like so many people, they get confused between the physical and the spiritual. Again, the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we've seen the work of the person, God the Son, seen part of the process by which God the Father draws us. Let's look at the power behind salvation in the third point. Jesus again preaches on in verse 53. Through 59, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So what does Jesus mean? 
What on earth does Jesus mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Surely, that's a bizarre teaching. Well, it was to the hearers 2,000 years ago. It will be for many of us today. Very brief explanation. Jesus is the living word. He was made flesh for us. The Bible is the written word. Whatever the Bible says about Jesus, it also says about itself, because both are holy, set apart for the purposes of salvation. Both are truth. The Word is truth. The living Word is truth. Both are light. The Bible gives insight to what we can't understand. Jesus gives insight into the darkness in which we can't understand. Both give life. Both produce the new birth. Both are eternal. Both are the power of God to salvation to give us this eternal life. So the conclusion of that is obvious. When you receive the Word into your heart, i.e. when you hear what the Bible says and believe it, then you receive Jesus Christ as the living Word because the Word becomes spirit to us. We eat His flesh by partaking of the Word of God. Jesus says, I am their living bread. In verse 51, in Matthew 4 and 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So to have salvation, to partake of what Jesus has given to us, we come to the written word that takes us to the living word. And the living word comes to live within us when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. So verse 60 Again, we've had Jesus preach, and here's the response in the application. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So Jesus preaches on in verse 61 towards a conclusion. Let's continue to read there. Where his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. That there are, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So we see there that some people are offended at this doctrine. And many ceased at that point to follow Jesus. But then the gospel, the good news, is an offensive message to non-Christians. You see, only good news once you accept its truths and allow the truths to set you free. Up until that point, in your experience, it's extremely bad news because it alerts you to your pitiful condition that you're a sinner in the eyes of a holy God and it warns you of impending judgment by that righteous God that you will die in your sin unless you turn and find life in Jesus. Horatius Bonner, a famous Scottish preacher of the 19th century, had the offense of the cross in mind when he said, For we know that the unrenewed will is set against the gospel. It is enmity to God and, its truth, and his truth. It is the gospel that the unbeliever hates, and the more clearly it is set before him, the more he hates it. Cutting against all human pride, the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace through faith and not any works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 and 
8, Romans 3, 20 and 23 says, there is, Therefore there is no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law we have become conscious of sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this is the conclusion. Can you see it yet? For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, says Jesus. Now with an offer like this on the table, you'd think it was a no-brainer, wouldn't you? Jesus says, I will save you from yourselves. I will save you from your sin. I will guarantee you a place in eternity with me in glory forever and ever and ever. I will give you life. It's a no-brainer. Well, verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 66 through 71. And even one of those was, uh, a few people respond positively, but even one of those was pretending. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, do you want to leave me too? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Peter grasps the meaning of the sermon. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So can you see what it is yet? The gospel message paints an incredibly intricate and beautiful picture of how God desires to save people from their sins and his judgment. But not everyone can see it. See, following Jesus is no easy believism. On the one hand, it's so simple that even little children, age five, sometimes younger, can see its truth. And yet it's so complex that the most brilliant human minds can't figure it out. It is the Word of God revealing the person of Christ, the living Word of God, that separates the two. The crowd desiring physical bread for their bodies rejected the spiritual bread and source of life for the soul. I'll leave one final question with you. What will you do? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the eternal living word that makes us wise to salvation. And so, Lord, we've heard your word. We've asked your spirit to come. Through the interaction of the spirit and the word, Father, we pray that you will do your work here in this place tonight. And draw those that are coming to you, that you might give them to Jesus, that they might put their trust in him and walk with them all their days. Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.